well, you're starting season two of the podcast, and I figured, I don't know, maybe you could revamp the theme song a little bit, make it a little bit classier, you know? That is so cool. Did you write that yourself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been working on it a little bit. I thought we'd take a little bit more of a classical approach, but you'll have to run it by Greg. <laughs> Greg never listens to these. I guess it's fine. We'll get halfway through season two before he even figures it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to record. Okay, let's go. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my named co-defendant Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude, a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this, our inaugural episode of Season 2, we yet again subcontract out talent by inviting people to call in and describe what quantitative work they did over their summer vacation. In addition to being amazed at the many cool things people are doing out in the quant world, we discuss imprimaturs, Battle Without Honor, Digestive Rituals, Hostage Videos, Underwear, Utility Infielders, Alexis in Alexis, Affectionate Slaps, Strunk and White, Irony vs. Paradox, and Oxford Commas. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Did you guys really just say that I don't listen to the episodes? Did you really just say that? Oh, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know damn well what I'm talking about. This whole musical front end thing that you just went ahead and took care of without consulting me. What's what's going on there? I had plans. This is season two. This is the way you start season two. We needed a little classiness. There's an indelible imprimatur on mm -hmm. Tate's riffing, your son's riffing on the open thing. All I can picture every time I hear that is uh -huh. you hiding in the hallway with your cell phone recording him in his underwear. <laughs> and something had to be done about it. Okay. You can call him and break his heart. That's fine. I don't disagree about changing music for season two. Mm -hmm. Hi, everybody. Welcome to season two. I, oh, I yeah. don't disagree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah well, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Whatever. So... What, cough it up, Hancock, what? Okay, okay, okay. You know the song, Battle Without Honor or Humanity? Is that, do you know that song? Of course. Yeah, so I had this vision that maybe even you and Tate could do the, you know, and, and we would come fade in with the whole, it was, it was huge. You're an Arrested Development fan, right? <laughs> you remember where he had the license plate mm -hmm. that said, A New Start. Uh -huh. <laughs> but everybody who read it, it read Anus Tart. <laughs> well, it's time to correct old misconceptions. And that is why I'm making a new start. <laughs> uh -huh. I was trying to have an Anus Tart for season two. <laughs> I didn't think I could get away with it indefinitely, mm -hmm. but I figured we'd get well into the fall before you figured it out. <laughs> and our family motto is, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. I figured, why not just lock this down? Uh-huh. So, so go ahead and ask then. <laughs> Those are just words to you, aren't they? <laughs> 
Welcome to season two, everybody. Uh, we have a lot of cool stuff going on, and welcome to everybody out there who's joining us again. Welcome back, and we hope that you've had a safe and healthy summer. So this is the first day of class in many ways. By the way, do you do anything like on the first day of class? Because you've had the first day of class. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, yesterday was my first day of class. All right. And so do you do anything? Is there a standard first day kind of thing that you do to break there the ice? There is, indeed. What's your thing? An hour before class, I crapped a brick. The class was an hour away. And that I probably needed to pull some material together. I actually thought you were referring to a digestive ritual. <laughs> yep, that's how I denote the beginning of each semester. What's wrong with you? I'm sorry. Dude. (laughs) It drives my wife insane because of all the plumbing problems. No, I, it, for 25 years, every single major transition we hit is, and it happened this semester as well. We're at dinner and I'm like, oh my God, do you know classes start tomorrow? (laughs) And she's like, oh, for the love of God, how do you not know this? She's been writing lectures for like three months, Mm -hmm. and I was like, I need to pull a syllabus together. (laughs) So I updated my syllabus. We had a two and a half hour lecture on matrix algebra in anticipation of navigating into structural equation modeling, and Mm -hmm. it was great fun. And do you do anything to get to know the students at the beginning? Any kind of individual sharing or? Nope. I kind of said hello, laid out the class, and dove right into an N by P data matrix. (laughs) Setting the tone for the entire semester. (laughs) You might as well just freaking embrace it, because Uh if we did introductions, I would not have made it to determinants. That's a good point. It's just a different dynamic, and it's kind of awkward to do. If you were in person, what would be your icebreaker? So who's your advisor? What program are you in? What's your research interest? And then one sentence of tell us something that people don't know about you at this point in the program. And it is so cool. That's one of my favorite parts. I couldn't care less who their advisor is, but it's totally cool to hear like somebody is a gourmet chef or somebody is a pilot or somebody crochets these things around trees or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it's, I find it fascinating. I always find it interesting of what people do outside of academia. I think that's just cool. I frame it as one fascinating non-academic thing about yourself. And people have just opened up, uncomfortably so. I've gotten people who have mentioned being in prison, people who will describe tattoos they have in private places. It really sort of (laughs) sets a tone. And because I tell people it has to be fascinating, there will be occasions where someone will say something and I'll look at the class and go, I didn't find that that fascinating. How about you guys? And so I'll make them give me another one. Wow. I know. That like they're is not nervous the enough, worst right? possible. <laughs> They're very first day in class. Uh-huh. And you say, yeah, yeah. no, that, that's, no, that's, not, that's horrible. Okay. <laughs> we have our weekly brown bag series for Quant. Everybody says, what did you do on summer vacation? Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because pre-pandemic, yeah. Somebody will bike across the country or they will go to wherever or do whatever. And by the fifth person, people are like, yeah, I stayed home too. Right. I was like, oh boy, this is kind of exhausting. It's more efficient just to ask the question, what did you binge watch this summer? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. 
So let's do that here. So what did you do with your summer break? Or currently doing since I'm back to work and you are not. I am hosting a conference that's coming up in a couple of weeks. In fact, it may be happening by the time this episode drops. So a lot of preparation associated with that. And then getting high quality family time. (laughs) Why are you holding up today's issue of the Seattle Times to your... This is like a hostage kind of photo. Ah, yes. As I said, getting high quality family time. Um, So I am out in the Northwest, but I'm not recording from my nephew's bedroom today. I am recording from a room that is used as a supply closet. Um, So it's (laughs) upgrade. Eh, eh, It smells a little better. Well, and you have a better internet connection than when you were up living with the preppers in northern Michigan. Yes, that's right. There was like a five-minute delay between when you would talk and when I would hear it. And ironically, the episodes were not degraded whatsoever. Nobody even noticed. Yeah, and people wouldn't know this, of course, but the episodes of Quanticamp that were recorded in northern Michigan, two of the three of them I recorded in my in-law's walk-in closet using their their underwear drawer as my desk. <laughs> the amount of information you overshare <laughs> is getting longer and longer, and it mostly involves underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm your TMI guy here on Quantitude. Boy, you um, ain't a kidding. All right, what about your summer? Tell us about your summer. I had an embarrassingly good summer in terms of it was just kind of fun as my twin daughters are about to turn 16 mm-hmm. and they have adjusted to the new normal exceedingly well. One girl runs and mountain bikes and works a heavy bag and the other girl plays piano, as you're aware. Mm-hmm and is way into digital art and then still insists on peeling years off of my life. She does social distance platform diving. It's like, oh, good. They're really safe. They're really far. They do all of these temperature taking and everything. And then she throws herself off a 10-meter board. Right. And so it's like, well, that's great, honey. You know, when your body floats to the surface, it will be germ-free. Uh-huh. I had an interesting project where I'm not playing in my bands with the trumpet stuff, and so I decided to try to play an entire set of music on my own and just record it with myself. Mm -hmm. And so there are 11 parts to it, and so I've been working through bit by bit. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear a clip of that? No. Mm -mm. It is not good. It is not good. I am the utility infielder of hobbies. Uh So again, we'll tie it. We'll start right off with episode one of season two by tying it back to baseball because that's what's important here. Mm -hmm. But a utility infielder Mm -hmm. is a player who is not good enough to start at any given position, (laughs) but they can competently fill in Mm -hmm. any infield position temporarily. That's a utility infielder. I am Hmm. the utility infielder of intellectual contributions Mm -hmm. and of hobbies. And so here's a little clip. Okay. I warned you that was not going to be good. But better than I expected. But maybe the idea of having you guys do that song as the theme music, the Battle Without Honor or Humanity, maybe that wasn't going to fly this season. But 
possibly if you work on things over this year, maybe we can come back with the... All right, new rule. Mm -hmm. No more of that (laughs) ever. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Am Mm. I unclear about that rule? (laughs) One thing that I learned, and I learned this after our experience with Quanticamp, Mm -hmm. is it turns out that doing a podcast is much easier and much more efficient and quite honestly, much more engaging for the listener when we have other people do it for us. (laughs) So we had Nyana help Uh out. We had Becca help out. Mm -hmm. I thought season two would be so much easier if we actually subcontracted out a lot of this. So tell the listeners what you've done to prepare for today's episode. (laughs) Because I did nothing whatsoever to help out in any way with this. (laughs) So in the spirit of getting people involved in quantitative things, or at least giving voice to the quantitative things they're involved in, we thought we would have sort of a what I did this summer kind of episode. I reached out to a number of people who listen to the podcast and who interact on Twitter around some of the things that we do. And I asked them to tell us a little bit about some of the quantitative things that they were involved in. So we have a number of folks who are going to tell us a bit about what they were doing quantitatively this summer. And it's a really nice cross-section of things that they're involved in. I'm excited. I like this. So with that said, let me cue up the first audio clip. Hi, my name is Amanda Montoya. I'm an assistant professor of quantitative psychology at UCLA. One quantitative project I'm working on over the summer is my first experience mentoring an honors student whose name is Kat. The project that Kat and I are working on together is in collaboration with Dr. Jennifer Sumner, who is an assistant professor of health psychology here at UCLA. Dr. Sumner's research focuses on cardiovascular outcomes for individuals with PTSD. A really interesting part of this research is that we have to recruit individuals with PTSD and a comparison group that we want to be as similar as possible on other demographic characteristics. The original plan for recruitment was to conduct comparisons across the groups to make sure the groups didn't significantly differ. And if they did start to differ, we would adjust recruitment to try to balance it out. Obviously, there are some problems with that approach, and I thought that we could do something better. So that's where Kat's project comes in. What we're doing is trying to see if we can use propensity scores to assist with the recruitment of participants in order to balance the groups on their demographics. Typically, propensity scores are used after data collection has occurred, and we take a subset of existing data to create two groups that are roughly equal. But what we're trying to do is go on the offensive and use them as part of the recruitment process. So Kat's working on both writing R scripts to help with the regular recruitment process and some Monte Carlo simulations to investigate how the new method works in comparison to other approaches. We're really excited about the project. I'm super proud of Kat for working on this. It's very ambitious. I'm learning a lot about mentorship, especially at the undergraduate level. It seems like not very many quantitative psychology labs involve undergraduates in their research, but I think the tides are changing. And hopefully in the future, there will be many more honors thesis projects in quantitative psychology. There are so many cool things there. Absolutely. What's the first thing that pops for you? Going on the offensive. 
Yeah. I love that thinking. I love that approach of getting out ahead of things is so much of what we do is defensive. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very symbolic. You and I and people in our field often play the cleanup role, whether it's in design or the nature of the measures that they have, whatever. And they come and they dump it on our desk and say, help me clean up the design on the back end. And you want to slap them affectionately. In this case, I like that what they're doing is being thoughtful on the front end to try and make good decisions so that there isn't the cleanup on the back end, so that they have a cleaner inferential thread along the way. So absolutely, that was one of the things I responded to. I really like the mentoring theme. Mm. Uh, I think mentoring is something that you and I both care about quite a bit. I like that Amanda is wrestling with mentoring, especially mentoring someone who is a bit younger and they have fewer experiences, both in, in content and in life. And I like that she's just reflecting on that. Mentoring is something that takes a lot of skill And it's not that you just, congratulations, you've got a PhD, you know how to mentor now. Um, Not unlike parenting, congratulations, you have a kid, you must know how to parent. And I don't actually know what it's like to mentor an undergrad very much because I don't tend to deal with those. You have more experience with that, don't you? I do. And that was another dimension that I really responded to. And I'm already writing down ideas for future episodes for this season because there are a couple, two or three things here Mm -hmm. we could talk about. Mm -hmm. The other is how to involve undergrads in quantitative research to help the pipeline issue. I don't know about you and when you look at applications for grad study in quantitative and quantitative sciences, one of the things I look for is, do you have experience in quantitatively relevant research before Mm -hmm. applying to grad school? I don't expect you to have learned something from that because we're going to teach you from the ground up. My main question is, is do you know what you're getting into? Mm -hmm. Do you know what quantitative research is? And whatever experience you've had, do you still want to do that at the doctoral level? Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, as Amanda points out, a lot of quantitative labs don't incorporate undergrads in those kinds of experiences, myself included. Mm -hmm. And part of the challenge is, is a lot of what we do is take ANOVA, regression, structural equation model, factor analysis, multi-level model, growth modeling, and now we're going to make that complicated. Undergrads (laughs) aren't prepared for that kind of research, Mm -hmm. but I think there are many ways that you can do that, and we could dedicate a future episode to that. We're expecting really good things from CAT. That's all I'm going to say. We need a cat update because Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, she is embracing the concept of ICS, the ice cream sandwich. Mm -hmm. We know about non-equivalent control groups. Mm -hmm. We know about matching. We know about propensity. But dang, to put those together during the recruitment That is so freaking cool. Mm -hmm. And so, Amanda, thank you for the update. And Kat, we're coming after you later this year. All right, let's turn to the next one. So that one was about mentoring, and it had obviously it had a substantive component to it as well. I think the next ones that we have have to do with more didactic kinds of elements. And what I just put under the heading of general ambassadorship, that is people who are trying to bring things into their world. This would imply that I tried to cluster them topically, and I actually didn't. And so if that was your cluster, (laughs) let's go with that. Okay. 
I was doing them alphabetically. But no, that's fine, too. Okay. Do you want to introduce the next one? Sure. The next one is Daniel Moriarty. And I don't want to spoil anything more about what Daniel's going to say. Other than that is arguably the coolest name a person can ever have. In a world of locked rooms, the man with the key is king. And honey, you should see me in a crown. My brother and I were traveling. He had his phone out. He called me an Uber for the airport. We were out in San Francisco and it popped up and said, your driver is Alexis and she is driving Alexis. <laughs> I looked at my brother and I said, be the one guy, the one guy uh -huh. who doesn't say something. And she pulled up and rolled down the window and my brother yelled, are you Alexis in Alexis? <laughs> and I was just like, oh. Could you, so It was bigger than him. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, let's <clears throat> cue up Moriarty. Yes, Moriarty. My name is Daniel Moriarty, and I'm a sixth-year PhD student in Temple University's clinical psychology program. This summer, I had a lot of fun putting the finishing touches on a paper about physiometrics and biological psychiatry. In my readings, there seems to be less standardized reporting of some key measurement characteristics germane to typical study designs in behavioral health research, for example, factor structure, internal consistency, and temporal stability, for biological variables compared to self-report questionnaires. So the goal of this paper was to outline why these characteristics are important to understand and report as standard practice for biological variables, provide examples of existing physiometric research, and provide some easy-to-implement suggestions to strengthen state of measurement in biological psychiatry. And I definitely struggled with how to find that right balance between highlighting areas that can use improvement when not sounding overly critical of existing work. I believe biological psychiatry has great potential, and I think more measurement work could help push the field forward. It was super exciting to see the amazing work already being done in this area. Not only research about what these measurement characteristics look like for different biological variables, but also how these characteristics depend on how people collect their data and other analytic decisions such as how extreme values are handled. So I'm really excited to see how the field of physiometrics develops over the next couple of years. Okay, so this too is very cool because I love the notion of getting in the Wayback Machine mm -hmm. and going back a hundred years to core psychometrics, whether they be in factor analysis, classical test theory, I mean, some really fundamental things, and then jumping in the Wayback Machine to come forward with all of the amazing new biobehavioral neuro kinds of measures mm -hmm. and putting those two things together. I absolutely agree. For me, what I see often in a number of fields is that they get very caught up in the technology to be able to measure things, but they don't know about quality of measurement and so forth. So the idea that he is trying to really introduce those standard principles, I think is very, very noble. And I love the things that he's wrestling with. And I especially love his sensitivity to the way the field might react if he isn't somewhat diplomatic in the way that he communicates some of these principles to them. Because you don't really want to take the angle that y'all don't know what you're doing. You haven't really been careful in putting the technological cart in front of the measurement horse. I like that he was wrestling with that. And I view him as one of those people who's trying to elevate his field. And that was exactly what we were hoping people were going to be doing. 
something that we talked about in just the the final episode of Quantic Camp, I think, but that notion of I'm better than I was, but I'm not as good as I want to be. And so how can you identify areas that are in need of improvement without throwing away everything that's brought us up to that point? I very much like that. And I like that notion of, yes, we can have a $10 million fMRI machine, but we still have to think about test, retest, reliability. Mm-hmm. We still have to think about construct validity. We still have to think about precision and all of these things that a master's student would be expected to address if she developed a 10-item measure mm-hmm. for self-esteem. Why wouldn't we apply the same principles to these new bio-neuro kinds of measures? I only had one other note on my list here that you haven't already covered, and that is that Daniel's in his sixth year as a PhD student. It's time to finish, Daniel. It's time to get out there. (laughs) (laughs) I did six years in grad school. Is there something you'd like to share with me? Exactly my point, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about number three. The next clip that we have comes from Solomon Kurz, and he will tell us a little bit about some stuff that he's wrestling with and how he's trying to bring it to a wider audience. Go ahead and cue that up. Hey, fellow Quantitutors, this is Solomon Kurz. I'm a second year postdoctoral fellow at the VA Center of Excellence in Central Texas. In recent years, I've gotten into the habit of going through kind of applied statistics textbooks and translating the examples into some of my favorite R packages. And what I do is I take these translations and stitch them together as ebooks, which I make publicly available to anyone to, to check out. This summer, the book that I've been working through is the second edition of Richard McElroy's Statistical Rethinking, which is an introduction to Bayesian statistics. In recent weeks, I've been working through the material on the Bayesian multi-level model. And over the past week in particular, I've been working on putting together some bonus introductory material to what's called the mixed effects location scale model. And these come in particularly handy if you have things like EMA or daily diary data. With some editing and technical consultation help from quantitative methods grad student Donald Williams, we should have that material available for people to check out within the next couple few weeks. There's so many things I like about what Solomon said. First of all, I really like the translational nature of what he's doing. The book is great because it talks not just about doing, it talks about thinking and how to think about your models, how to think about your philosophy and beliefs and all of that kind of stuff. And I love that Solomon is trying to take that and make those principles accessible to people through the creation of his ebooks and our package stuff. So I really, really like that he's out there being a translator of a variety of things, not just a translator, but I think that's a key component of what he's doing right now. And I think that's a really valuable thing to be doing. And it's consistent with a point you made on a prior episode talking about if you really want to learn a method to code it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I really like that notion of taking a book and trying to code it yourself. Because again, there are multiple positive outcomes coming from that because you learn it much more deeply Mm -hmm. yourself, but then you share that with a broader audience for the sweat equity that you put into it is to say, hey, look at the 
cool thing that I did. It's how we learn. It's how we encode these things for ourselves. And he is trying to make that available to help other people as well. I love that. And something that he commented on, and I would like to come back maybe later in the season to talk about, are these location scale models. I just find fascinating. Don Hedeker. My name is Don and I have just one name. has written some really important papers on those and that notion that everything we do despite all the smoke and mirrors Mm -hmm. are just moving conditional means Mm -hmm. and that notion of saying what about the variance what is the impact of an intervention not just on moving the mean of symptomatology but the variability in symptomatology that's fascinating i think it's not just fascinating i think it's an essential complement to the things that we have been so caught up in there's a wonderful book called the end of average that talks about how little information we actually get by focusing on averages and it does it in a very nice popular press kind of way but the point is extremely well taken. The mean loses so much information about the richness, the heterogeneity, the diversity of things. And I think that would be a great topic to unpack a lot. And I'm grateful to Solomon for for making it pop up on our radar. I'm mangling the quote because I've not seen it for a number of years, but Stephen Jay Gould in The Mismeasure of Man Mm -hmm. says some variant of the mean is an abstraction, the variance is reality. Hmm, Very nice. So we will come back and revisit that. Okay. Introduce us to the next one. Sure. The next one that we have in our ambassador block is by Tova Larsen. She is trying to elevate her particular discipline by infusing some of the quantitative methods that she has become acquainted with. My name is Tove Larsson. I'm a postdoc at Uppsala University in Sweden, and I'm also affiliated with Northern Arizona University in the U.S., And as my quantitative summer project, I've been working on a collaborative study aiming to introduce structural equation modeling, specifically measured variable path models, to corpus linguists. So I'm a corpus linguist myself, meaning that I do research on language using large collections of texts, so-called corpora. My collaborators and I believe that there are real advantages of SEM for corpus linguists. It's just that people don't really know it yet, which makes this project so exciting and and important. The main advantages of these path models as we see it are that they, by design, rely on cumulative knowledge building and model-based thinking, both of which have perhaps largely been lacking in corpus linguistics up until now. So We believe that the SEM framework could be very helpful for the field. And I've really, really enjoyed working on this project. I don't think that my learning curve has been this steep since I was an undergrad. Maybe that's also where one of the challenges lie with projects such as these. They force you out of your substantive comfort zone and it is scary to feel like you're a bit out of your depth. Except you do it anyway because you find the topic very important and really, really fun to work with. You know what I responded the most to was her saying that she really enjoyed it and the challenge of getting out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. 
None of us went into this field to make money. And we get these intangible kinds of benefits from what we do. You could just tell in her voice the satisfaction she's getting from this, but also the challenge, right, of putting yourself in a situation that maybe you don't feel confident in or comfortable in, and then getting some satisfaction from getting on the other side of that. There's a thing with my daughters I talk about is never drive home from the gig without having played the solo. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is I'm in a couple of bands where we can be in the middle of the song and people will reach up and touch their nose as to who is not going to play the solo. And if you're the last one to touch, (laughs) you have to play the solo. I had a gig where I was the last one and I put my horn down and shook my head And a measure before one of the other guys picked up his instrument and played it. And driving home, I was so upset with myself Mm -hmm. for having done that because I didn't take the opportunity. I was scared. Mm -hmm. Never drive home without having played the solo. And that's what she's doing, is putting herself out there. And I really admire that. I do too. And it points to an interesting irony, maybe? Paradox? I'm not sure what exactly to call it. But that is that... Fields become established in the way they do things, the way they think about things. And the change in how fields think and do is not usually going to come from the people who are exceedingly well established because they're the ones that help to inculcate those ways of thinking and ways of doing. And so then you get someone who is a postdoc or a relatively new faculty member who's able to look at it from the outside and marry it with some of the methods they've been exposed to and say, you know what, maybe we could think differently. And you're not really in a position of power when you're at that point in your career, but you're the one knocking on the door saying, hey, um, do you think maybe we could try something else? And I really, really like that. I love this symbolically that the change is coming from the next generation. And she also gave us two future episodes, one in cumulative knowledge and one in model-based thinking. So thank you, Tova. That was very helpful. (laughs) This is great. We we don't have to do any planning. (laughs) Okay, so the next block, assuming that there is a, a structure to this, I think is characterized by people who are really stretching themselves to try to solve particular problems, and they're doing that in different ways, and I don't want to give it away, but the first one is going to be Zach Kanicki. Hey, Quantitative listeners. My name is Zach Kanicki, and I'm a postdoc at the Quantitative Sciences Program at Brown University, working under the mentorship of Rich Jones. This summer, my quantitative project was doing my first simulation study where we looked at agreement reliability. We all know that our conventional guideline for reliability is we just look at internal consistency. If it's 0.7 or higher, we say, great, that's good enough. But that's not really the best practice, and there are a lot of issues with that. We found that if you have an internal consistency of 0.7, you can have agreement proportions under 40%. Clinically speaking, that's a huge issue because... If you are going to, say, use a test to determine if someone's license is going to be taken away, you definitely do not want agreement levels of 40% or lower. This is an area that I think is going to need further attention, but for right now, uh, our results are suggesting that the easiest way to increase agreement is to add more items to your measures and to try to make sure that measures have strong fact loadings. As far as the challenging parts of this study has been, uh, it was definitely presenting the over 300 pieces of information from all the conditions of our simulation. 
Right now, we're still putting together the manuscript and we're hoping to have a first draft ready to submit uh, by the end of the month, but we'll see how it goes. I love that Zach is out there trying his first simulation study. We had a whole episode on Monte Carlo simulation and it is its own way of knowing things. And I think he's wrestling with a lot of aspects of that. I mean, honestly, he'd have to be wrestling with a lot of aspects of that with regard to design. And as he mentioned explicitly, the challenge of taking the different conditions that you have examined and trying to convey that in a meaningful way. And that was something that we ourselves had chatted about in that previous episode. So there's a lot of cool stuff in here. We talked in that simulation one a lot about design and ways of knowing and simulation as a method of data collection. We didn't talk so much about how do you present the results from a simulation in a meaningful, navigable way? And that'd be an mm -hmm. interesting conversation to have. The other component that I really liked was his noting that these are high stakes things to understand. Mm -hmm. He referred to talking about removing a license. I like that notion of, look, these things that we talk about in terms of reliability, in terms of factor loadings, in terms of proportion agreement, these have really important high-stake implications, and we need to pay attention to that and make contributions in those ways. And that might be one of the most important take-homes here is that it's important to keep these things embedded in stuff that matters. And maybe it would be good for us to keep that in mind uh, occasionally as well. The other thing that I particularly like about what he's working on is simply the timeliness of it. Mm -hmm. So opening the paper every day in terms of the COVID tests and the reliability. Just a few days ago, the Ohio governor tested positive in the morning mm -hmm. for COVID. And then that afternoon tested negative for COVID. Oh, yeah. And again, going back to that notion of high stakes topics that we study is sensitivity, specificity. It's good to go back again to first principles. So should we go on to our next contestant? Please do. Yeah, the next one is our old friend Willa. And if I'm not mistaken, Willa and Schatz were working on some stuff that we talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah, Schatz called in with a voice memo that pushed us into the integrative data analysis episode. Hi, Quant Crew. I am Willa Van Dyke. I am a postdoc at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. I am excited to share what I did during QuantiCamp this summer. So this past summer, I've been working on increasing my knowledge and skills in integrative data analysis. I'm interested in answering questions about implementation fidelity and its mediating relation between an intervention and student reading outcomes. I'm busy writing a grant, yay! in which we propose to merge intervention data to run these mediation models. The coolest thing I think about IDA is that you can harmonize items. I think this is kind of like squinting at some items and say, yeah, these look about the same. And then you use stats magic to make them the same. This is very helpful in our case because implementation fidelity is usually measured specifically tailored to an intervention. And we may have to be creative in creating overarching indices of fidelity. By the way, I've always wondered if the plural of index is indices or indexes. Anybody want to help us out? 
So we've been looking into various measurement and variance models and how to assess if groups are different or the same. And this opened a whole different can of worms. And that led us to reading about the good enough principle, which is really cool. That is what I did this summer. I am on the job market this year. So keep me in mind. Thanks. I could organize my life around the principles of squinting and good enough. <laughs> in my notes as well. But are they really more important than indexes versus indices? Mm. Which one do you use, by the way? Indexes or indices? Indices. Good, because that's the correct answer. Indexes is wrong. It's an Englishification of something that should use its Latin origins. Just to clarify, your main contributions to the paper we wrote this summer centered around commas. Yeah. You are just a strunk and white aficionado, aren't you? And you're just one sloppy son of a I have a random <laughs> comma distribution policy. Holy crap. I, someone from Oxford should show up at your house and throw tea in your face and then leave. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I am an, I'm a full-on Oxford comma guy. But I love what Willa is doing. I love that she uses the word coolest mm -hmm. because this is cool. This is fun. This is having a problem that you're faced with and saying, how can we learn something more than we currently have, even though how we go about doing that is maybe not perfect, that good enough principle. I think we could do a whole episode on the good enough principle. I think a lot of what our field does loses sight of that, that we are so caught up in the minutia of the performance of our methods, and, and I will raise my hand and say I have absolutely been that person, that we don't really pull back and say, is any of this going to make a difference in terms of the kinds of inferences that we make or the kinds of decisions we make? When you think about the stuff that Zach was telling us about and the actual anchoring to impact that it has with regard to certification, that's someone who really needs to know where is the line between good enough and not good enough. And another potential maybe professional development topic to kick around is she is on the job market and talking about not only what is typical things that are involved in that, but given the whole Zoom generation this year, mm. what are mm -hmm. atypical things? And so maybe we could do some episode on that this season. I love that she's trying to write a grant. I love that she's trying to get funding for this. And that in and of itself is a tremendous learning opportunity. So there's so much wrapped up in what she's doing. All right, Dr. Hancock, we are in the home stretch. Who's next? All right. The next person that we have would be Ben Listig. Ben is going to tell us a little bit about who he is, but he's wrestling with some pretty messy things that come up in certain types of longitudinal designs. So take it away, Ben. Hi, Quantitude. My name is Ben Listig, and I'm an incoming second-year PhD student at the University of Georgia's Industrial Organizational Psychology Department. One of the big projects I've been working on over the summer has been applying natural language processing models to text data collected using ecological momentary assessments delivered via text message. The broad goal of this project is to better understand how undergraduate research experiences influence students' feelings of scientific self-efficacy, scientific identity, and ultimately their desire to pursue a career in a STEM field. I would say one of the most challenging aspects of this project for me has been pre-processing the data to get it ready for analyses. Another challenge has been trying to understand the reason for some of the missing data we have and if different mechanisms are at play. However, despite these challenges, this project has been very fulfilling and we have some interesting preliminary results. For example, it appears that undergraduate research experiences have a positive effect on students' feelings of scientific self-efficacy, 
but this effect varies depending on the type of task a student accomplishes as part of their research experience. This project is important to me because it combines both my methodological interests in latent variable modeling with my substantive interests in better understanding people's career interests and their occupational decisions. Thanks so much for letting me talk about my work, and I can't wait to hear what Quantitude has in store for season two. All right. So the take-home message for me from Ben is that real data suck, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, all the challenges with people either giving wrong information or having to link different data sources, all of that, what a giant pre-processing headache. I'm sorry about that, but it builds character, Ben. So congratulations. Well, and also going back to the emotional supportive element that we fostered over the Mm. first season is moving into second season to continue that is tough Mm -hmm. crap. (laughs) Thanks, Uncle Patrick. 90% of scientific (laughs) progress is data management. It really is. And I think there's lots to be plumbed in a future episode about that. How do you deal with increasingly complex data, bringing in the notion of error traps? How do you build a process in which you catch errors Mm -hmm. before they move into the analyses? But I really believe the vast majority of our day jobs is in data management Mm -hmm. and the modeling sometimes almost becomes superfluous. It's like, oh yeah, now I'll fit a couple of growth models because... I spent a month getting the data organized. How many times have you been working with somebody who has come to you with their data and said, I really need help with the modeling, and you've done stuff only to realize that they screwed up the data? Every time? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm getting weird results, and I don't know why. I don't know. It it could be the fact that in the group code variable that you have designated as male and female, zero and one, someone is coded as a nine. Oh, I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. But that's offset by the negative 32 for age. (laughs) But topically, what I really like is natural language processing with EMA. I mean, how cool is that? Not just looking at things like word counts or valence of adjectives in a text message, Mm -hmm. but trying to draw these more thematic kind of constructs. And again, it goes all the way back to what is measurement is Mm -hmm. the principled assignment of numbers to observations Mm -hmm. is trying to draw out some systematic empirical capturing of the actual content of a communication. I think that's incredibly cool. It would be useful to unpack a little bit for us later on in the, I was going to say semester, but later on in season two. All right. I feel like we're at the last one. Is my count correct? I think you are correct. The cleanup hitter for today is going to be Johnny Felt from Penn State. So let's hear it, Johnny. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I just, did did I just miss an opportunity? Here's Johnny. Here's Johnny. Oh, boy. You see, that's an old reference for people. (laughs) For those of you out there who... Hi, my name is Johnny, and I'm a postdoc at Penn State doing work in health psychology and quantitative methods. I have been working on a project where we aim to understand the long-term effects of early life adversities. I'm currently working to characterize the developmental trajectories of biological systems in response to these early life adversities, 
using nonlinear growth curve models. The data I'm working with spans several decades, which has allowed us some flexibility in the modeling choices that we've made. Right now, we are working with some piecewise or spline growth curve models, where linear slopes are estimated before and after some knot or inflection point, as opposed to fitting a quadratic or exponential model. However, each person contributes a different number of measurements, so estimating the random effects for the knot location has been challenging. We are currently looking into different approaches to circumvent this issue, including finding better starting values for the estimates or possibly moving to a Bayesian framework. Regardless, I'm having a blast working on this project and listening to the podcast with my son, Oliver. Hi, please bring back Jiffy. <laughs> well, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about my work. Bring back Jiffy. We should yeah. have a t-shirt made or something with that. Poor Jiffy. I, I completely forgot about Jiffy. I have to admit. A lot of people have been contacting us over the summer about Jiffy. There was an online Twitter poll about whether or not... <laughs> whether to kill him off. Whether Jiffy should be killed off or not. The vast majority, of, that is to say two out of the three people who participated. No. That's a lot still of, a majority. <laughs> yeah, still a majority. People want Jiffy to come back. And you know what? I do too. I'm concerned about Jiffy. Some people sent pictures of lemurs that <laughs> over the summer. Like, I think I might have seen him in Stockholm. I have a message out to Tessa, and I'm hoping to see if she has any updates on Jiffy's whereabouts. We'll see. All right, so I will look forward to hearing what update Tessa might have. But Johnny is dealing with some very cool things, other than having an awesome son. And thank you, Oliver. We appreciate your contributions. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you and I navigated an entire year of the podcast without ever talking about growth modeling, because I would have to say that's kind of what you and I tend to do for a living. And so we managed to navigate mm -hmm. something like three dozen episodes without ever talking about it. But I love the stuff he's doing, looking at development of biobehavioral systems, looking at nonlinearity, looking at difficult models to estimate just the very issue of start values. I think there's a ton of interesting stuff here. I love the nonlinear growth modeling things. And I am particularly enamored of ways that we can parameterize these kinds of models to make them work for us. And I think that's something that we could spend a good amount of time talking about, different types of longitudinal models, issues that arise in longitudinal models. People have a habit of squishing their research question into whatever the tool can handle. And I hate that. I really hate that. And one of the beautiful things about certain modeling frameworks is that they can be made to work for you. And growth modeling is one of those things that actually can be made increasingly flexible. You just have to know how to parameterize it in certain ways. And what I liked that I heard Johnny talking about was just an example of that. He thinks that he might have a spline model. If it's two spliced lines, that means that whatever process he's interested in modeling has some point where two processes intersect, but he doesn't know where. That time point might differ for different people. You think about puberty, for example, some people hit that earlier, some people hit that later. How do we estimate that? How do we parameterize that? He So he's really digging into some cool things that I think we could unpack later on in the season. So if my scorecard at home is correct, that was our last call in. Is that right? Yes, number eight. So we need an exit strategy. Do, do you have an exit strategy? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are probably some housekeeping things that we should be talking about as we look ahead to this season. One is that 
we had so many messages about how do I get merchandise? And we even joked about that earlier on in the season that poor Jiffy, he could only do things with his nose. So <laughs> Jiffy, hang on a sec. <sighs> okay. So we now have some merchandise up on Redbubble. It's growing. You can get stickers through Redbubble, different images, your daughter's beautiful little quantitoid that she drew, <laughs> which was awesome. So there's a lot of different stuff that you can get there, different sticker options. There's a, a hoodie, there's a t-shirt, and the t-shirt only displays in white, but actually you can choose a variety of colors, and the white is a, it's a bad display because the white font disappears. But yeah, go up there, and there's probably six or eight things there. The mug is currently under construction, uh, and we have more things that will be populating very, very soon. So we have your daughter to thank for that, right? Sid set that stuff up, and so thank you, mm -hmm. Sydney, for doing that. Mm -hmm. Also, Greg and I are going to use any money, 100% of money that's generated from the merchandise to support various projects on DonorsChoose.org. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people are familiar with this, but it's a remarkable nonprofit. It was founded by a public high school teacher in the Bronx 20 years ago now. He just wanted to buy copies of Little House on the Prairie for his class, mm -hmm. and all of DonorsChoose came from that. They're now in every public school in the country. They've funded over a million projects. And if you're not familiar with it, you can go on, pick a particular project and support a given teacher in a given classroom. Greg and I are going to identify projects in low-income schools that are targeted at supporting remote access. Mm -hmm. Because one of the big things that we're struggling with in the pandemic is the technology gap between the haves and the have-nots. And so anything that you get with our ridiculous stuff printed on it, 100% of it will go to these projects that are targeted at these lower-income schools with technology. So as you're thinking about what you're going to get people for the holidays in a few months, there are a lot of options there and do some good along the way. I had another thing. What's that? So folks might remember from last season where we ended many of the episodes, if not all of them, many of them, with some sponsors. And we intend to continue to end our episodes with sponsors. The main challenge is... <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> We're out of ideas, man. These things just flowed. Greg and I would separately be in faculty meetings, and uh -huh. I could just write them uh -huh. as fast as the pen moved. Uh -huh. I'm done. That is just my Spent. muse has packed up and left the building. Right. If you have a funny idea for a sponsor, go ahead and just shoot it to us by email. And we'll put it in the hopper and see if it makes it up on the list. Because both of us are just, we're running on fumes right Crickets. now. There, yeah. there are only so many R jokes you can make before <laughs> you're just done. So let's see, a couple of themes that we'll have for the upcoming season. We have been criticized for agreeing with each other too much. And so yep. we are going to dedicate ourselves to disagreeing a little bit more. No, we're not. This shouldn't be hard to do because I think that we disagree quite a bit, but we are trying to be too nice and we will be less nice to one another. No, we won't. Let the adults talk here, Greg, <laughs> all right? 
we are going to try to reach out and involve more outside experts. We're going to mm-hmm. reach out and try to involve more listeners, trying to loop in people who are maybe working on things that we can chat about. Mm-hmm. Maybe expand some issues to some timely kind of things that are in the news. And then, of course, we're going to keep our big tradition of puzzlers. Oh, my gosh. Those were huge last season, weren't they? Yeah, we did one. <laughs> and then we're like, yeah, that wasn't very good. <laughs> and so, so big puzzlers, big puzzlers. <laughs> but I got to tell you, Greg, while we were listening to this, I am so thankful to everybody who called in in this episode and shared their experiences with us. We're so mm-hmm. pleased at the kind of work that you're doing and what different people are achieving. I literally have been writing out things that people addressed or raised at various points in the conversation. I'm going to rip through these as potential show episodes. Mm -hmm. Reliability, agreement, sensitivity, specificity, growth curve, nonlinearity, mediation, moderation, data management, natural language processing, EMA, psychometrics of biobehavioral and neuroscience data, advising undergrads, involving undergrads in research, propensity scores, model-based thinking, cumulative knowledge, translational work, good enough principle and squinting, job market, plurals of different words along (laughs) with proper use of commas and semicolons. Damn it, you took my joke away. (laughs) What I was going to say is the only thing I have to add to your list is commas. Yeah, it's going to be a great season and we're really grateful as always for people being with us and I can't wait to get started. Thank you for the call-ins. Thank you, everyone, for being foolish enough to follow us for another season. Take care, stay healthy, enjoy re-entry into the semester, and we really look forward to talking to you in the upcoming months. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, Q-Potters. Welcome back. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a text or voice message. And don't forget, there's actual Quantitude merchandise on Redbubble.com, where 100% of the proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help students in low-income schools get remote access during these challenging times. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that once you binge listen, you wish you could purge listen. Today's episode has been sponsored by internet news sites voted your number one source for absolutely awful statistical examples for 25 years straight and by university administrators reassuring parents everywhere that they can expect world-class online instruction by faculty who have kids at home all day and are about to be furloughed and by data that are missing not at random i hate you go yourself you This is most definitely not NPR. Whew, that felt good. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Patrick. Um, I know we talked about maybe changing up the theme music this year, um, and I had an idea. Uh, instead of having Tate's really cool theme song from last year, maybe we could go with, do you know that song, uh, Battle Without Honor or Humanity? Oh, it is so awesome. Um, it would, it would, so it would come in something like this.
something like that, oh, it would be so awesome. All right, just a thought, just a thought. We'll talk to you later about it.